This is an RNZ podcast. An abuse survivor is warning that government agencies shouldn't investigate themselves and decide on redress for victims of people abused in state care. Keith Whiffin, who was abused from the age of 11 while he was a state ward, has given evidence to the Royal Commission inquiring into state and faith-based abuse. That was RNZ News last Tuesday as the Royal Commission into Abuse in State Care resumed its public hearings in Auckland. Keith Whiffin, as well as being a survivor, is also an advocate whose efforts to force the state to acknowledge the abuse is a major reason that Commission of Inquiry was established in the first place. He told the Commission it's important that scrutiny of what went on comes from outside the state agencies responsible for what happened to him and others in the past. Secondly, and very importantly for me personally, any claims process must be independent of the ministries and agencies who represent the perpetrator and who themselves are liable for the abuse. But how much scrutiny has the media applied from outside over all the years when the stories of people like Keith Whiffin went untold or ignored? We'll look at that later. The Royal Commission is looking at what went on between 1950 and 1999, and two years ago its remit was extended to church institutions as well. But last week there was a devastating reminder that abuse of vulnerable young people didn't come to an end with the previous millennium. More arrests are expected in an investigation into historical sexual abuse at Auckland's Dilworth School. Six men, now between 68 and 78 years of age, have been arrested. The offences allegedly occurred from the 1970s to the early 2000s, and no one charged has any continued connection to Dilworth School. That was News Talk ZB News on the afternoon of the 14th of September, the day shocking news about the abuse of children at Dilworth School hit the headlines. And this was no ordinary story about no ordinary school. It was founded more than a century ago to give boys from deprived backgrounds an elite education their families couldn't otherwise afford. Earlier this month, in a New Zealand Herald investigation on the wealth of private schools, reporter Matt Nippett found Dilworth way out in front with an estimated $900 million in assets in total, most of it in central city Auckland property. And Matt Nippett revealed it also had the best-paid senior staff. The six men who faced charges over sexual abuse between the 1970s and the early 2000s were granted name suppression and are expected to appear in court again next month. And all this was the result of the school's own investigation, as the headmaster and the chair of the school's trust board told a special press conference the day the news broke. So to any old boy that suffered abuse while at Dilworth, I want you to know that if you engage with our listening service, you will be listened to, you will be believed and you'll receive the professional support you need. Finally, I want to make it clear that the recent charges are historical and relate to alleged abuse of former students. None of the individuals charged continue to be connected with Dilworth School. The school's policy for dealing with allegations and disclosures of abuse is online for all to see. There's even an email address that people could use, whistleblower at dilworth.school.nz, to alert the Dilworth Trust Board. But in spite of the assurances that the offending was in the past, Police Detective Sergeant Jeff Baber told Newstalk ZB the investigation wasn't over. We have 17 complainants who have bravely come forward and told us their story. And I would encourage anybody who has any information, uh, further information, to come forward as well. And more people did come forward, and not just to the police, but also to the media. Joined now by Martin. Hello, Martin. Hey, Andrew. How's it going? Very well. You have a connection to the school. Yep, sure do. So my, my, my full name is Stephen 
Martin Welsh, and I was a pupil uh, at Dilworth from 1984 to 1990. So that's in the midst of what's going on. Mr Welsh went on to tell ZB's Andrew Dickens that the school was a great opportunity for him after his dad died when he was just four, but he also knew there was a dark side. It was a place of predatory behaviour. You were lucky if you didn't get picked out, and if you did get picked out, it was the norm. And he had this message for his peers, who he knew had suffered. You need to come forward, because... These other gentlemen that have come forward have been so brave, so brave, because there is a stigma that comes with assault against men by other men. So I implore you, if you're listening to this... And it was clearly difficult for Mr Welsh to make his feelings clear on the air, which host Andrew Dickens acknowledged. It was also very brave for you to phone the radio station and say this and to give your full name and to stand up for what you believe in and what needs to be said. And I uh, congratulate you for that. Well, well, well done. Many people wouldn't have been even that brave. It was very moving to hear your emotion. And it's also very good to remind everyone that there is strength in numbers if there are numbers that have been offended. The day after that, police said its Operation Beverly team had received more than 50 calls and emails from members of the public, and then another man, aged 60, was charged with assault and indecency offences as a result. And more men opened up in the media about what had happened to them at the school, some anonymously, but others putting their names to their claims, like Stephen Gray, who told RNZ's Charlotte Cook people in charge at Dilworth had known about the offending long before the news broke earlier this month. It was at the end of last year, and it was pretty free-ranging. And one of the things that came up was he talked about that he had seen a dossier, which was all the history of the molestation at Dilworth, and he was horrified by it. And I think that that sort of makes quite clear that they have known about it for a while, that they have a dossier of all the decades of abuse. While Dilworth School's management declined to discuss the old boys' accounts, it did release a statement saying it had previously reported allegations of sexual abuse to the police, and that has resulted in convictions. And in a story so far roundup in the Weekend Herald last weekend, or Mutanga Wiki, as the masthead read for Te Wiki o Te Reo Māori, social affairs reporter Isaac Davison revealed a victim of sexual abuse had warned the school two years ago to prepare for serious allegations. And Weekend Herald also revealed the alleged offending continued until late 2008. In one case, it wasn't confined to Auckland. And the New Zealand Herald's Hamilton reporter, Natalie Akuri, reported that one of the seven men who's been arrested was still a registered teacher and still teaching at Dilworth School until March this year. At the end of the story by the Herald, there was a list of agencies and services offering support to survivors and sufferers of abuse. And there was also a plea to get in touch with the paper and a promise from the editor of the Herald, Murray Kirkness. It's been a shock for New Zealanders to learn that several former staff at Auckland's Dilworth School have been charged with sex and drug offences against boys over more than three decades. We want you, our readers, to know that the Herald will follow this story wherever it leads. We have a team of journalists prepared to investigate and we want to hear from you. On social media last weekend, Herald reporter Isaac Davison said he thought there would be a lot more to report soon. This feels like just the start. Some Dilworth old boys are also planning to speak at the Royal Commission when the focus moves to the Anglican Church. 
But for those following the Royal Commission of Inquiry into abuse and state care, the Dilworth story is just another chapter in a story that's run for decades. And while there were lots of reporters in Auckland last week when the public hearings resumed on Monday, fewer have revealed the abuse that went largely unreported around the country for many years before that. Well, one who has is Aaron Smale, winner of this year's Voyager Award for feature writing and also now doing a PhD about Māori children in state custody. In an article for Mana magazine back in 2015 called Inside Out, he found that time in care homes was a common factor for many Māori men serving time in the country's prisons. In the following year, RNZ published his investigative report Justice Delayed, Justice Denied, which revealed that parts of a critical report that called for an inquiry into abuse had been held back from public release. Now this, in part, prompted the Royal Commission, which was set up in 2017. So this week I asked Aaron Smale, does the media deserve credit for helping to bring past crimes to public attention, or did they fail to report abuse when it was going on, unchecked, for so long? There's a lot to catch up with. I mean, I'm, I've been fully immersed in the subject and there's, there's so much to get your head around over now generations is extremely significant. I mean, you know, there's a lot of coverage, obviously, of Wadanga Tamariki at the moment, but if you look, if you delve into it, a lot of those kids that are being picked up are actually the mokopuna, the grandchildren of those who have gone through. There's a whole lot of linkages there that I don't think are that well understood at the moment, and uh, I think the media's kind of not picking up on some of those connections. You've even like credited people who've built relationships, you know, sufferers, survivors, who've built relationships with the media as being really important. Um, like some of the people in your stories, they have people in them that I imagine would be pretty hard for the media to connect with. You know, they're in gangs, they're, they're on the fringes of society. Maybe media haven't done enough to try and connect with a world that doesn't interact with the media an awful lot. Yeah, I think that is a big problem. I mean, you know, I spoke at, uh, I think you were at it, there was a conference, an investigative journalism conference, and I made the point that you could go onto any media site and type into the search engine the word gangs, and you'd have probably thousands of stories come up. And yet if you went through those stories, who's being spoken to? Usually it's either a minister of police, an opposition minister of police, uh, or shadow minister, uh, and... Or Jared Gilbert. Or Jared Gilbert, yeah. So there's there's only about a handful of people that are spoken to in those stories. Gang members themselves are very rarely spoken to. I mean, is that partly because you realised there was this big overlap between people who'd spent time in care homes in the past and gang membership? Do they trust and respect the news media, a journalist at staff or NZME or RNZ, that really doesn't mean a whole lot to them? Well, the short answer is no, they don't trust the media. I mean, when the media is constantly beating up on them, mm. why would they? Uh, and, you know, I mean, it took me a while to establish trust because, you know, I turn up and I'm from such and such, then... It, you know, all they see is the institution. They don't see me. And I've got to get over that barrier, and that's my job, to do that. Um, I had probably a little bit of an advantage in that. I had worked for Mana Magazine um, for some time, so that probably got me a few points on the board. You know, every newsroom's got a context list. I don't think many of them have got, you know, a whole lot of people on that context list that um, are in that sector, if you want to call it. And they certainly haven't, you know, it's very rare to find journalists that have got established relationships with those groups. Actually, you mentioned in your submission to the Royal Commission, working for Mana Magazine gave you the opportunity to tell social issue stories for a Māori audience. That gave you freedom to look at those issues from a Māori point of view. Um, However, you say, I realised it was Pakia who needed to hear the stories I was telling. Um, Do you still feel 
uh, that way. There's still a blind spot on this issue, which is actually one that the whole of society should be uh, informed about. Yeah, well, one of the things, I mean, I, when I was at Mana, I got that freedom. You, you didn't have to justify, I mean, I was answering to myself anyway because I was the associate editor, but even when I was, you know, pitching stories to my, pre, my predecessor, you didn't have to explain the significance of the story. It was pretty much a given, you know, they could see the importance of it. When I came here to RNZ, and RNZ is probably pretty good compared to a lot of um, outlets, um, I mean, for example, the first story I did on state abuse, I would say the story itself, in terms of its difficulty, 30% of the difficulty was getting the story, and that was no easy feat. The other 70% of the difficulty was actually convincing or trying to explain to my bosses how important this was. And it wasn't until I put virtually the whole thing in front of them that they could suddenly see it. Yeah, yeah, justice delayed, justice denied, which we mentioned earlier. Uh, that was an example of that, wasn't it? Because when that went online, was followed up with interviews on Morning Report, it was one of those cases where, you know, phone lines lit up. People bang, did respond yeah. and say, and I think even uh, someone even marched into RNZ in Christchurch, I think, wanting to share their story like yeah. immediately. And, you know, so it was one of those stories that had that kind of impact. Yeah, and it's many of them have not been heard. In fact, they've been silenced by individual perpetrators, but also the state itself. I think one of the things that the media uh, misses is that the institution, they often get fixated on the individual stories of suffering, which are extremely important. But what's the institution? What has it done? How has it responded? Who knew and what did they do about it? And yeah, I mean, Radio New Zealand's coverage has tended towards that. I was just looking at a story this morning that did go into that and further down in the story. But, you know, we're talking about the state here, and I think... This This is is related to the Royal Commission hearings ongoing at the moment? Yes, and, you know, I think this is where it might be helpful to just look at, you know, you've got Dilworth, which is blowing up in terms of coverage, and, you know, there's been uh, charges laid and serious charges laid, and it was interesting to me that the Herald, at the bottom of one of its stories, says, look, we're going to commit a, a team of journalists to this and we're going to follow it wherever it leads. My reaction to that was a, a little slight annoyance, actually, because it's like, OK, now, I'm not for a moment suggesting that the suffering of those individuals is unimportant or, you know, somehow lesser than state abuse victims. For the individuals themselves, it doesn't really matter which institution they're in. You know, the suffering is devastating, whether it happens in Dilworth or Kohitere. My point is, is that Dilworth is a school. Okay, it's owned by or run by the Anglican Church, which is a powerful institution on its own. But if you're looking at the state institutions, you know, the state is responsible for prosecuting crimes. The state is responsible, you know, was responsible for those children in those institutions. It had removed them from their families. And so it's the state that's responsible for prosecuting crimes. And yet who's the criminal here? It's actually state employees. Crown law is one of the most, has carried out some of the most egregious uh, behaviour in all of this in terms of trying to protect the state from liability. Um, that's starting to unravel for them a bit now because um, you know some of the testimony that's been given in front of the Royal Commission gets in behind that. That's the big issue here, that the media has kind of 
not really grappling with. So uh, that, that's one of the specific difficulties of the story, right, that there's Crown law oh, and there's yeah. legal implications when the Crown's involved that's a bit different. But with the Dilworth School, I mean, surely you would applaud the Herald, wouldn't you, for saying, look, here's a school in our area, Auckland, it's the Herald's uh, region, uh, this abuse has been going on for decades, I mean, even now, partly because of the Herald's reporters, we're working out initially they were told, you know, 70s to early 2000s. Now they're saying, well, even possibly the 50s to the late 2000s. And you'd applaud them. Herald's editor coming out and saying, hey, I'm going to put my own message on this and saying, we, we really are going to follow this up. Yeah, oh, absolutely. I support that. And those victims deserve that kind of coverage. But so, OK, explain to me then why... Those who went through Koitere, and you know, we've, there was a whole network of institutions throughout the country, and there's multiple allegations against multiple perpetrators. There was perpetrators moved from the South Island to Campbell Park, up to Hokio, then through to Holdsworth or Wairaka. I, I, I'm not for a moment diminishing uh, the importance of covering what's happened to Dilworth. Go for it, you know, by all means, go for it. But. It just seems to me that we've had this issue of the state abuse out in the open now. Um, you've given all this, you've committed all this resource to this story. It just raises some rather, you know, uncomfortable questions actually about what it is that they are giving priority to. Now you raised, as a journalist covering it, you raised an interesting issue which is, you know, the, the focus on individual stories which we are hearing out of this Royal Commission, individual people giving their testimony. So do you need a really specific approach when talking to sources who, I mean, because, you know, obviously you need trust between a journalist and a source and these are people whose trust was broken and abused many, many years in the past and you wanted them to talk about something that... You know, they've spent it's the worst thing that's more than 20 years not talking about, uh, on average, if that, yeah. uh, if that testimony is correct at the Royal Commission. Um, yeah, I mean, I was privileged to be chosen as um, a journalism school in New York and in Columbia University, and I got to be part of what's called the Ockberg Fellowship, which is about reporting on trauma. And, I mean, I've read about this subject and tried to grapple with it, you know, over a little while now. And, yes, I mean, trauma is something that... Uh, it's basically it's the there's a part of the brain that reacts to trauma and it, it's different and it sorry I'm going to go back back up again sure I've noticed with survivors that you know there's certain reactions when they start talking about these traumatic events their their whole demeanor their whole voice everything shifts and at first it really alarms me because it's like am I doing this person more harm you know, is is me asking them to tell their story actually re-traumatising them? And there is an element where that's almost unavoidable in terms of asking somebody to recount something like that, or even not the specifics, but the impact of it. And, you know, it's, you're talking about a different part of the brain. There's a part of the brain, the survival part of the brain, that kicks in and takes over when traumatic events happen. So you do have to say to them, this is all up to you. If you want to talk about the stuff, fine, I'm listening. If you don't, I'm not going to push it. Or are you in the position of saying, look, this is an important issue and you're really trying to persuade them against you know, to overcome their reluctance? And even if they don't personally feel this is going to be good for them, that you think it's worth doing? Well, I think you have to approach it. Yes, you want, and all of the other fellows, and we're talking journalists from CNN, you know, Washington Post, um, Wall Street Journal, some really top-shelf journalists covering all sorts of horrible events. And the thing we had in common was, how do you how do, you do that? How do you get somebody to tell you about some, you know, what might be the worst day in their life? 
um, for the purposes of you telling yeah, a story. <laughs> and, you know, what are the ethics there? And I think one of the things that I'm very careful about is that it's, you know, there's a thing about empathy fatigue where the, the public becomes kind of sick of hearing, you know, at a certain point. I mean, look at COVID, you know, everybody was getting these individual stories at the start. Now it's just a number. Um, and there's this real risk to uh, survivors and there's a risk that your audience is going to switch off. And I think, you know, I've always tried to um, be very specific about the purpose of the story. Yes, I want to hear those personal details, but I want to add that layer in that says, okay, how were you treated by the institution when you raised this? And otherwise, what is the purpose of the story? You have to be trying to achieve something for those uh, victims. Otherwise, it just becomes... You know, it becomes a bit of a an, an Oprah show where you're just asking somebody to sit on the couch and spill their guts. And, and, and why? For an emotive reaction. Um, you have to be doing something more than that for survivors. You know, when you're asking them to put themselves through this, you know, process of telling their story in a public realm... Uh, you've got to be go right back to basics and say, why am I doing this? And even more so if these are people whose personal history means they're probably not inclined to um, <laughs> to uh, to trust or feel good about the media yeah. in the first place right I mean, from the start. And there's a flip side to that. I think there's, again, that, that phrase I use, dignity of being heard. There is a you know validation in them um, being believed, um, sometimes for the first time. Sometimes their family don't really believe or understand what they've been through. And, and having that public validation that this is important enough to be heard in a public, you know, forum. And then they discover that, you know, they're not alone and that there are a lot of others out there. And, you know, I know that for, um, like, Albie Epide, for example, he was slightly reluctant after the fact, after he'd given the interview to me, and he was tempted to ring me up and wanted to pull the pin. And then it was kind of too late. It was already up. And so, I mean, Albie was one of these guys, been in, in care homes from a very young age, separated from his family, abused, went through the gang system, as you know, as yep. you discovered, that was a pretty common background factor and a lot of guys that ended up in gangs. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And that kind of kicked open the door for, for a lot of others to, to, to talk about it, even if it was only amongst themselves. He started getting messages on social media, you know, well done, bro, you know. Um, and I think it... it he began to realise that it was actually what he'd done was not just talk about himself, but he was actually representing a lot of other people. And it gave them permission to talk about it, even amongst themselves, and also uh, that there was nothing to be ashamed of, that they could talk to the media. I mean, uh, there was a very good follow-up to that, uh, Mihi Forbes on the Hui, you know, four guys. And that uh, it just gave them that permission to speak, I suppose you could say. And that's hugely important. That's one aspect of telling these stories that, um, you know, is, is extremely gratifying. It's giving them that validation, that belief that, yes, this did happen to you and it was wrong. Um, because they often, you know, they have the sense of shame and feeling like it's their fault. And that's, you know, you've really got to break that down and say, no, it isn't, actually. Uh, and, yeah. And finally, Aaron, you have embarked on a PhD, uh, researching Māori children in state custody. Um, now this is a project in history, I think, 
But yep. are you going to, as a journalist, you know, the first draft of the history is journalism, are you actually going to be including some sort of analysis in this? Or will it, will it come into it uh, of, you know, how the media has performed in all the years, all the decades that this has been an issue in New Zealand that was underreported and, well, arguably still is? Yeah, I mean, that's one aspect of it. I mean, it's it's broader than just the abuse. I think it's, uh, I mean, my focus is on Māori, so it's how Māori were portrayed and, and that whole feedback loop of, uh, I guess you could say, racism in the media that perpetuated and generated some of the negative reactions from the public and the state. Um, but all, yeah, all meant that the issue wasn't focused on at all. Because, no, exactly. Mm. And there's, I mean, it's kind of... When I say history, I mean it's kind of in living memory, and it's not that you know it's not really past. I mean, mm. you know, history. I think was it William Faulkner said it's it's not uh, it's not even past. It's still with us, and so yeah, it's the media's role in this. I think is what is it? Well, you know, I think we're so in a hurry at the moment to get something out quickly that sometimes we need to step back and say, well, where did this come from? And I, I stood in front of a, in a gang who and said, you know, the media looks at you and sees a brown face and a patch. I said, but I'm interested in where you've come from. If the state was, if you were in these institutions, the state was your parent, it's part of your whakapapa. And to me, it's about trying to understand that whakapapa, that genealogy, where has this come from? And where has it left people, in, you know, in terms of the intergenerational impact? Um, I had, you know, there's people out there, uh, children of victims. I ended up at a school function sitting next to a lady and we got talking, very professional, articulate, educated woman. And she was really asking me a lot about this whole thing that I was researching. And then I found out her father had gone through those institutions. And the impact it had on her, on her relationship with her dad, was quite staggering. And so, and she's done all right in her life and done very well, but the, even now that relationship is, is complicated. And so the ongoing impacts of this, uh, as I say, are, are massive, and I don't think we've really understood it. Government departments are still reacting to a lot of the problems that have come out of this, uh, corrections. They are dealing with a lot of individuals who have been damaged in the system, and yet you know, we've, that's not really acknowledged. I've seen prison files of guys who are asking for help from corrections for the abuse in these places over a 30-year period, repeatedly, and never getting it. And so, you know, it's, there's a lot to unravel, and there's a lot, you know, a lot more stories to tell. That was Aaron Smale, winner of this year's Voyager Award for Feature Writing, now also doing a PhD about Māori children in state custody. In an article for Mana magazine back in 2015, he found that time in care homes was a common factor for many Māori men serving time in prison. In the following year, RNZ published his investigative report, Justice Delayed, Justice Denied, which in part prompted the Royal Commission, which was set up in 2017.